Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gell for Open Your Eyes, and I'm with the great uh, Dr. Tom Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a medical scientist. He has a PhD. He's from uh, MIT, Harvard uh, Public Health. And welcome, Tom. Thanks for, for joining me. Kerry, always great to be here. We need to get the word out on how important the eye is in helping people prevent and reverse chronic diseases. So this is the ideal forum. Glad to be part of it. Well, thank you. Uh, so if you could talk a little bit, let's start with Alzheimer's. You're an expert in Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative disease. If you just explain what Alzheimer's is and uh, any kind of background about doctors, Dr. Alzheimer's. Yeah, well, Kerry, you know, my reason why I'm passionate about Alzheimer's is my dad died of the disease almost 16 years ago now. And um, he had so many indicators that we largely ignored because we thought they were just different diseases. But we have to start thinking beyond the brain when it comes to Alzheimer's. Now, Dr. Alzheimer's himself, back in 1907, said there were two key things. Amyloid plaques and microfibrillary tangles, uh, so-called tau tangles. But I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I think the research supports me, that the antimicrobial, oh, I'm sorry, I, I jumped ahead, but the amyloid plaques that every drug company has tried to reduce to reverse Alzheimer's, those studies have failed. And sadly, uh, Dr. Moore at Harvard just recently passed away from a glioblastoma but his work showed very clearly that these amyloids that occur in the brain of people suffering from neurodegeneration are actually part of the innate immune response. He calls them antimicrobial peptides, which give us a lot of clues that some of these diseases, including neurodegenerative diseases of the eye, like glaucoma, can actually have an infectious component. I'm not saying, that, saying they're completely infectious, but can have an infectious component. So let me just slip to the other side of the coin that Dr. Alzheimer's talked about, the tau. Now, if you look at these tau microfibrillary tangles, number one, the best place to observe them is in the back of the eye with the GDX instrument and other instruments to look at the conformation of the so-called microtubules. But number two, in nature, they occur in animals that are hibernating. So just common sense is, what's the, what's the commonality between someone suffering Alzheimer's and an animal, a mammal, we're mammals, in hibernation? It's the brain has very little oxygen. They're in a hypoxic state. So the hibernating animal produces this tau as an energy conservation means. Now in Alzheimer's, I believe it's a vascular disease mainly where there's vascular dysfunction and what that means is hypoxia. So the tau is there to protect. And of course, the first trials with companies that are trying to reduce tau burden have failed. Just showing that this is a disease, that these, both these things, the amyloid and the tau should not be mucked with. They're part of the innate immune response to protect a brain that's in crisis. And we're gonna talk about the eye as a biomarker for Alzheimer's. Absolutely. Uh, but before I do that, I want to ask you a question about, uh, about toxicity and Alzheimer's or maybe Parkinson's. How does that fit in, being exposed well, to toxicities? You know, 
when when we look at things, I, I I don't like to hark back to World War II and Hitler, but I always wind up doing it. He fought on three fronts. Germany fought on three fronts, and they lost. Okay, but what if they'd only fought on two fronts? Our body diseases are all connected through our vascular and lymphatic and our nervous system, but mainly our our vascular system. Okay, so that is the interconnection of all diseases and all components of our body. When you think of it right now, Kara, you and I are just sitting here, kind of quiet, kind of quiescent. If I've tracked one little red blood cell disc going through my heart, in 60 seconds, it's going through my heart again. That's how connected we are. It's in my eye, it's in my brain, it's in my toes, it's in my thyroid, it's in my muscle. Every 60 seconds, we're intimately connected. So toxicity plays a role in that if you have toxicity to overcome, that is another front that your immune system is fighting and it no longer has the bandwidth to actively fight for things that might be leading to neurodegeneration. But the most important thing in toxicity is finding the source and shutting it off. So for example, the major one we see out there, number one, bad teeth, bad oral hygiene, slightly bleeding gums. You are trickling toxic inflammation through infection into your bloodstream. The mercury amalgams have been shown to have a connection. You're constantly having mercury vapor absorbed into your body. The faucet is leaking, we need to turn that off. Hopefully if you have you know, toxic environment, you can shut that off, you can reduce your exposure to aluminum, you can reduce your exposure to pesticides like glyphosate, you know, Roundup, things like that. I believe toxicity is important, but I also believe our body has profound detoxification pathways. So toxicity is important, but actually not at the top of my list of the major causal factors of neurodegenerative eye diseases and uh, neurodegeneration of the brain. So if I had to ask you what you, you, in your opinion, you think the major causes of Alzheimer's are, and if I wanted to try to avoid it, what would they be? So we have a very simple three disease mechanism hypothesis. And I think it's well vetted in the literature. You know, in the medical community, ICD-10 is the playbook that doctors use. 68,000 codes, 68,000. How long would it take you to count to 68,000, Kerry? <laughs> I say there are one, two, three mechanisms of all chronic diseases that explain at least 90, 95, maybe even 99% of them. And number one is just adverse inflammation. And that is caused through a mechanism which I call malnutrition, which simply means our diet rich in calories and low in nutrients. So we have plenty of calories, but we don't have a lot of nutrients. And most of what we do is repair and recovery. We have to repair and recover. So I tell my participants, and I work with people from all socioeconomic walks of life. I said, if you're driving down the highway and your tire starts going flat, well, going to the gas station and filling your tank with gas solve your problem. And the answer is an abject no, okay? But that's what we're doing in our food supply. We're giving, we're giving gasoline in terms of readily absorbable calories, but in foods that have been processed so they have very low nutrient density. So our repair and recovery mechanism is weak 
and we have too many calories. And I just had an article up that says, you know, reducing insulin to the brain has a profound effect on slowing, stopping, and preventing neurodegeneration. That's mechanism one. The second mechanism is really sensitivities related to, once again, our food supply and leaky gut syndrome. So our gut's a sieve, and our, our sieve is opening up and things that shouldn't get through into our bloodstream are, and they're creating a form of inflammation or autoimmune disease. But really, it's solvable if we can get rid of offending foods and seal up the leaky gut. And then the third thing is chronic stealth infection. Most people know Lyme disease, but Lyme isn't the only chronic infectious disease that we can be infected by at some point in our life. And then later in life, when we're vulnerable, have opportunistic Lyme, Borrelia burgdorferi, other um, pathogens associated with Lyme come out to play in a, in a body that's not resilient. So chlamydia pneumoniae, rickettsial diseases, H. pylori, toxoplasmosis, many of these things. An interesting thing, Carrie, is that we think about a dormant bug, so herpes zoster, you know, what is it, the chicken pox. It should be dormant for life. We've been vaccinated against it, but people get shingles. You know, that's the herpes zoster coming out to play. That's the only one we talk about in terms of being dormant. You think that's the only bug in the world that can get in our body and be dormant and then express later in life and cause disease? Sure. That's why Kaiser says the number one cost costing disease and the number one cause of morbidity, poor health, is what's called ill-defined conditions. And I would suggest that the inflammation, the sensitivities, and the stealth infection are what's behind these ill-defined conditions. Now let's talk about the eye as a biomarker. You're an expert in looking at the eye as a biomarker for, for helping us detect or diagnosing disease. Uh, can you give us the backstory on that? Yeah, I think it's important to say, Carrie, that I'm not the expert. All optometrists and even ophthalmologists are the experts, but they're just not doing it regularly. And I think it's important to differentiate between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. Yes, an ophthalmologist has more schooling in, in medicine, but they're primarily surgeons, whereas optometrists are really focused, pardon the pun, on the eye. And I think that puts them in a much better position to be diagnosticians. But some of the first studies came out from, you know, a not too, know, not too well known university, Harvard. Um, back in 2003, when Tansy and his group published that supranuclear cataracts are actually associated with neurodegenerative conditions, particularly Alzheimer's. So a cataract is a very common thing. But a supranuclear cataract or a cortical cataract happens to occur in the periphery of the lens. So in some cases, it's ignored. But you don't have to be a genius to see these. Any optometrist using a basic instrument in all optometry offices, a slit lamp microscope, using the right intensity of light and the right narrowness of the beam can see these formations. It's, it's, we all know that if it, it's bright out and you close your curtains, and there's a little a bit of light, you know, a little slit of light coming in, you see all the dust. It illuminates the dust. That's what optometry can do in terms of seeing the amyloid plaque forming 
in the lens, you literally see the dust or the amyloid plaque formations. And the grading scale that optometry uses for classifying any type of cataract, but particularly the supranuclear cataract, is completely adequate in showing and potentially diagnosing Alzheimer's before you have a memory deficit. And, and I, I would say the literature is pretty robust at showing that if you have a supranuclear cataract early on that an optometrist can see, that may be giving you an early warning sign for future Alzheimer's that may be 15, even 20 years down the road. So that's really the, the number one thing in what's called the, uh, the anterior part of the, part of the eye, the, the um, outermost part. So as, as an optometrist and, you know, ophthalmologist out there, but speaking for, for optometrists, we see a lot of people that have these little plaques. Of course, a lot of people get Alzheimer's uh, disease. Now, at what point can we, as a PhD, one, just to backtrack even again, one of the things is that you PhDs come out and do great research, and it takes almost 17 years for clinicians to actually use the great research that is done by PhDs like yourself. So at one point, can I say, oh, I feel comfortable, patient comes in and I see one of these cortical cataracts and says, okay, well, we need to, you may be at risk for Alzheimer's disease. You need to be doing these, this and this for your lifestyle that we'll get into at the end when we, we ask you some of the, some of the solutions but how comfortable can I say that as a, as a doctor when patients come in, because so many people have these, these type of cataracts when they're over 65, over 70, but you know, what percentage of the people actually wind up getting Alzheimer's? Exactly, you know, I was just on the phone with colleagues of mine at the Dove Clinic in Winchester, England, and we're starting to set up an Alzheimer's protocol with them, because guess what, the number one killer premature death in England is Alzheimer's disease. So, and most of them, it's like, how did this happen to me? So Dr. Trump and I, Dr. Trump was an ophthalmologist at Harvard, wrote a paper that was published a year or so ago, which says it's never too early and never too late to consider causal factors for Alzheimer's. So I would argue that that's my answer, Kerry, but let me go into it a little more clearly. Because in our sick care system, we wait till there's symptoms. Well, it's not a step function. You know, I'm healthy, now all of a sudden I'm sick. You don't catch Alzheimer's, you migrate into it. You migrate into it, it's all on a continuum. So we've created in my program this, what I call a four-dimensional health that recognizes that people are ready to take action at various stages of the disease. You know, and we have a very simple formula. Lifestyle risks, beget, you know, lifestyle and behavior beget risks. Risks, if they perpetuate, lead to physiological changes. Where do you measure physiology? Mainly in the blood. You can measure it in the stool, saliva, urine, but mainly in the blood. When a physiological change stays, uh, you know, an adverse one is sustained, then you start seeing pathological changes. And that means changes in actual tissue. It's no longer just the blood but we're seeing tissue start deteriorating. And I would argue the best place to see that is in the eye, clear window to tissue. What better place in the world? And then the fourth dimension, so dimension one is risk, dimension two is physiology, blood, 
Dimension three is pathology, mainly the eye, but you can do other imaging. And dimension four is actual disease. You know, do you have a diagnosis? Are you on medications? So different strokes for different folks. Some people are motivated and they say, my gosh, I don't want to ever have Alzheimer's. I don't care if, if you're 25 years old, take the risk portfolio, do, do some risk assessment and start making proactive changes towards risk factors that we know are attributable to future Alzheimer's. But I would argue to people with cataract formation is let's step back one step and do robust blood testing, homocysteine, Framingham study. Every five points that homocysteine goes up increases your risk for future dementia by 40%. What, what's the normal range for homocysteine or optimal range in, in, in your opinion? Yeah, homocysteine should be between six and 10. You know, optimally even a little bit lower, but six and 10. So if you're at 14, you now have a 40% uptick. And the world isn't linear. So if you're at 18, you're probably a quadruple the risk because everything behaves sort of by the Gaussian curve asymptotically. C-reactive protein. You know, Judith McClosey, my good friend and colleague in Switzerland, published Alzheimer's, this paper in 1993. 17 years, Carrie, this is a lot longer than 17 years. The name of that paper was Alzheimer's disease, aspiriketosis, question mark. What is aspirikete? Certain type of bacteria like Lyme disease, okay? And she showed that spirochetes living in the mouth through the roots of the root, you know, your roots of your teeth can migrate to the brain, look at how close, and start causing neurodegeneration leading to Alzheimer's. So do you have elevated white blood cell counts? You know, I'm not looking for sepsis, I'm looking for slightly elevated white blood cell counts. And that's a $2 test. You know, that'll tell us whether you potentially have a inflammatory and even infectious link to that cortical cataract. If your white blood cell counts are out, up, for example, and you have a cortical cataract. So what, 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 take action. Give me, what's, what's optimal for white blood cell count? White blood cell counts, truly, truly optimal is 4,400. And that's a pretty narrow range, right? But what we've shown, we, we created a mortality scale. And what we've shown based on the current scientific and historic scientific lecture, uh, literature, if your white blood cells are below 4,000, you have a statistical increase in early mortality. And on the other end, it's around 5,800. At 5,800 or above, you have a statistical increase in mortality. And these aren't quack studies. This is the Harvard Medical School the Women's Health Initiative, the Nurses' Health Study, 138,000 women. If I take two women groups, one that has 47,000 white blood cell count and one that has 67, um, I said 67,000, yeah, 6,700 and 4,700 and compare these, follow them for six years prospectively. The 6,700, 50% more have died in six years. And that's relative, so it's not a huge number, but to the women in the 6,700 group, I would think they all care about that. So these are huge studies. And so periodontal disease is a major player. Gut dysbiosis, major player. Um, 
chronic talk, infections, major flare. You talked about homocysteine and C-reactive protein. If you could just explain what those are. So I'll start with C-reactive protein because that's the easiest one to explain. C-reactive protein is a inflammatory marker. I believe it's part of the innate immune system response. And it's specific to the endothelial tissue, the tissue right inside the inside of your blood vessel. So it's a marker for how much inflammation you have right inside your blood vessel. And so therefore it's a marker of inflammation in blood vessels. So what are the two most vascular tissues in our body, the ones that are most metabolically active? Number one, the retina. Number two, the brain. So it makes sense that if you have vascular inflammation and you have tissue that's highly vascular, that those tissues would be some of the first or most adversely impacted. That's why C-reactive protein is so highly correlated to macular degeneration, to glaucoma, to cataract, to Alzheimer's, to vascular dementia, to even depression, okay? And homocysteine is another vascular, more broad vascular marker. It's also a marker of poor methylation tied back to nutrition in your body, but very strongly tied to vascular dysfunction. When you think about it, a red blood cell carry like a dollar bill in circulation only lasts for 120 days. And then, then like if I talk to you in four months, every blood cell in your body is gonna be replaced. Why? Because they're getting beaten up. Homocysteine is a strong marker for how quickly your red blood cells and your vessels, your vessel linings are, are deteriorating in your body. Something I think everybody should know. We're, we're so focused on lipids and cholesterol that we're ignoring markers that actually have more substantial statistical data correlating them to dementias and to vascular uh, outcomes like heart attack, stroke, high blood pressure, things like that. What, what's your optimal range for C-reactive protein? Below 0.6 uh, milligrams per deciliter. Now, and a lot of times you'll see three, five, 10, clearly wrong. I mean, that's, that's sick care. Yeah, if your C-reactive protein is 10, I mean, you're, you're at imminent risk. Right. But if you're C-reactive, this is what I tell my participants to do. I'll do, a little, I'll do a little thing with my glasses here, Carrie, just to do, this is just a blue blocker. Back of my hand, just pretend this is like the inside of my blood vessel. If I rub like this, no big deal. But what if I rub like this 24-7 and the pressure I apply is tied to the C-reactive protein level? What's going to happen? I'm going to rub that tissue raw. That's what's going on inside your blood vessels when your CRP is above 0.6. I basically say it at above 0.6, you're at equilibrium between deterioration and repair and recovery. Would you like to be at equilibrium or do you want to be advancing in terms of deterioration? That's your choice. I know another people get below. Another important marker to you that you've, I've heard you talk about uh, beautifully explain it uh, is fibrinogen. If you could explain that and, and optimal levels. I, I love fibrinogen. You know, once again, Carrie, I'm not a reductionist. And what that means, it's never one thing. So fibrinogen almost never goes up 
in isolation to other markers like C-reactive protein, homocysteine, and white blood cell count. But what fibrinogen does is help corroborate all these other numbers to say, hey, there's something real chronically going on because there's something called a half-life, which I won't get into. But if I gash myself right now and I'm bleeding, if I measure fibrinogen level, which is a signaling molecule that's looking like a scout for harm, my fibrinogen levels will go way up. And then they'll slowly decline as the cut is repaired. Now that's fibrinogen from a sick care perspective, but from a chronic, am I prematurely aging perspective, is fibrinogen is not looking for fissures, cuts, or gaps. It's just looking for damage. It's looking for damage, and it wants to repair inside the blood vessel so that blood vessel is pristine. So if your fibrinogen is slightly up, good chance your C-reactive protein inflammation is slightly up, your glucose is slightly up, your A1C is slightly up, your homocysteine is slightly up. You have inflammation, and what fibrinogen confirms is that repair and recovery is losing the battle to wear and tear and damage. And my number for fibrinogen is 185 to 285. And anything outside that, from looking at early mortality studies, you're losing the battle. Now, I think in the standard of care, the fibrinogen levels might be around similar to mine on the low end, but on the high end, it's like 530. Unacceptable. You are deteriorating your vessels at 530. At 285, you know, it's like this. I'm rubbing it, it's a little red. I take the insult away, no longer red. I'm staying even. In the Open Your Eyes film, uh, I found microaneurysms. And Chris, if you remember, his fibrinogen was high and his C-reactive protein was high. Yeah. And thanks to you and the learnings from a lot, what, have you, you, what you had taught me, I was able to help him to reverse all, all of his, uh, his biomarkers. So I just want to thank you for that. And thank you for being in the film. Well, you know, Kerry, it's, it's sometimes a challenging process when people are really late stage with disease, but if we can catch eyes, a, a disease as early by screening the eye and where, where we can see the vascular health of your vessels in the eye, which is a surrogate for the rest of your body, and for your brain, what's going on in your brain, because we can see neurological tissue, then we can reverse these conditions, improve nutrient density, improve repair and recovery, reduce crappy processed food which just provides calories but actually creates us to be malnourished. Nourishment and calories are two very different things. Solve the gut issues. You're eating foods that are offending. You might be allergic to something. And then look for the, the, the special sauce we do is look for that infection that gets in your system opportunistically, which is highly treatable without antibiotics in a lot of cases. I mean, late stage people with infection may need antibiotics, but we use a lot of natural things, including cod liver oil, great for the eyes, great for do, reducing inflammation, great for controlling infection. There's a lot of herbal remedies that are now in pill form that are very strong. I mean, there's very few strong antibiotics stronger than oregano oil, you know. Um, so vitamin C for, for chronic viral infections, you know. Amazing things you can do out there to reverse these processes. 
So I'm the optometrist, I'm the doctor, I'm looking at the patient, I see cataracts. So at this point, I would send out for some blood tests, C-reactive protein, homocysteine, uh, fibrinogen, white blood cell count, comes back abnormal. Now we know that this cataract that the patient has as a biomarker may be, able, may be uh, a, a clue that this person is at risk for some type of chronic disease such as Alzheimer's in the future. Is right. that fair and, to say? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I might be a little controversial in this, but it, it showed up in the New York Times, October 2017, I believe, maybe 18. And you can look it up. Ebola and cataract. And I love the caption in the New York Times. Doctors were surprised to find the classic nuclear cataract in children as young as five exposed to Ebola. And what that shows, and Ebola will get into the eye specifically, focally, localized. What that shows is that the response to the infection elicited the formation of this unfolded protein response that we call a cataract. It's part of the immune defense. So a lot of people out there are gonna be saying, ah, oh, no, I just get a lot of UV, you know, a lot of UV exposure, and that may be the cat why the cataract form. Hey, that may be the case, but I can tell you right now that doing the blood tests will absolutely confirm the, uh, a sporadic cataract versus one that's really due to some systemic or even a focal process in the eye, and it's a very clear distinction. If your blood's perfect, maybe it's some. Um, you know, ectopic, as we say in medicine, cataract. But I would say 90% of the time, it's due to some systemic process going on in your body that you're blessed to have notified to you through the cataract and now do something about it. Don't just take that magnificent biomarker, throw it in the trash and say, no big deal. Hey, it may not affect you for 20 years, but guess what? Someday, 20 years is gonna come. Right. Let's and hope. you may not like what your health is like in that 20-year period, you know? Right. And, and cataracts in early and uh, a young person, we always have to worry about blood sugar issues, diabetes. Absolutely. Uh, certain medications could, like systemic steroids, could cause cataracts. Let me ask you about retinal imaging. Uh, we do have very sophisticated retinal imaging in optometrist offices. And we'll see these peripheral spots, these white spots that we call drusen. If you could comment about that as far as being a biomarker. Right. So, you know, Carrie, you mentioned the PhDs and the long period of time to bring things to uh, fruition in medical practice. I'm a PhD from MIT, so it's a pretty good school, right? But I don't consider myself a researcher. I consider myself a translator. I don't do any of my own research, except on my own subjects who are overseen by medical doctors on my team. And I gather the data and look at our data to see what's going on. So there's an MD that's done tremendous work at UC Santa Barbara. His name is Don Anderson. And he has shown that certain or many of these little orange yellow globules you call drusen in optometry and ophthalmology contain the same amyloid, the 1-42 beta amyloid, in the plaques of brains of Alzheimer's sufferers. So once again, macular disease is an early warning sign, potentially, 
for a neurodegenerative process. It's interesting, you know, Dr. Anderson and I had a conversation, you know, the $64,000 question is, when do these things manifest future into the brain and why Parkinson's versus Alzheimer's? And really, I believe it's, it's all related to focal. Charles Mayo, founder of the Mayo Clinic, talked about focal infection, that the infection is not systemic like the flu. It can be localized and cause disease in just that compartment. So you can have a retinal focal infection. And I've proven this many, many, many times people who treated them and had a, what's called a Herxheimer's reaction. So these, these little globules, whether they're dry or wet, are not to be ignored beyond the eye capsule because they may imply both heart disease, and that's been shown in the age-related eye disease study, National Institute of Health, and many others. So I would argue, and this may not be a friendly statement, that the reason why a lot of people, particularly with wet AMD and Drusen, don't progress to Alzheimer's is because they have very high mortality, okay? Very high six-year mortality, 11%. So they may not be living long enough to actually get to a state where your redundant brain starts suffering from cognitive dysfunction. So you're a PhD who's an expert in the OCT and looking at the OCT for early diagnosis of neurodegenerative diseases. Can you explain what the OCT is, how the optometrist uses it, and how we could use it as a possible biomarker? Right, and everybody knows what an MRI is. So we know what an MRI, it's imaging, but it's called tomography, okay? It makes, it creates rather than two-dimensional, it creates three-dimensional spatial images of tissue. So what better way to look at things than from a three-dimensional? We've, we've moved from a flat to, uh, you know, go to a stereo movie, you know? Everything is much more alive. That's what MRI is. Well, OCT that optometrists use is MRI on steroids. It's the exact same thing. It captures three-dimensional images of neurological tissue in the back of the eye. Why is OCT superior to MRI? Well, MRI has to go through dense, thick tissue like my brain or my skin or whatever. So the type of light they use are very long wavelengths, so it's not interfering doesn't get interference from my, my skin or my bones. It can get through and create those images. Well, unfortunately, the resolution is tied to the wavelength. In the eye, since it's transparent, the OCT device can use wavelength that's very short like this. So what it means is it can look at tissue in much more fine, precise detail than an MRI can. That's why I believe we're missing the boat in Alzheimer's. Every neurologist is, is ordering an MRI and we're not able to see down to the capillary level in the brain. So we think it's a neurological condition where it's actually a vascular condition. Now OCT can see the capillaries, the micro vessels in the back of the eye and distinguish the retinal nerve fiber layer in tremendous detail, both thickness and volume. And that thickness and volume is very telling in terms of what's going on in terms of degeneration of nervous tissue. And the eye is an embryological and true outcropping of the brain. It's part of the brain. So when you see 
volume deterioration using OCT in the back of the eye, number one, unequivocally, it's telling you you have neurodegeneration. Number two, it's inferring that that neurodegeneration may be going on in parts of or the rest of the brain. And the beautiful thing about OCT, the instruments are fairly expensive, but you do a lot of testing with them. They're inexpensive to administer. They're non-invasive and they're very precise. There are many papers that say OCT is superior to MRI in diagnosing and, and measuring the progression of multiple sclerosis, okay? Papers will be coming forth in, in um, dementias and Alzheimer's in the future, but asserting the same thing. But I can assert today that that is absolutely the case in many, many cases. I would highly recommend anybody concerned about the future health of their brain run an OCT scan. It's all age graded, so you're not going to be comparing yourself to a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old. If you're 70, you're going to be compared to a cohort of 70-year-olds. And you can tell where you are on the neurodegeneration scale before you're, you can't remember your granddaughter's name. So with the OCT, which looks at the little tiny nerves, which make up the big nerves, there are different patterns that it shows the optometrist to tell us if you may be at risk for Alzheimer's. Absolutely. I mean, we, Carrie, frankly, I look at, at general uh, retinal nerve fiber layer thinning values and, and quadrant thinning, but you can go in from a research perspective and a good optometrist can go to this level. There are many bands of tissue in the retinal nerve fiber layer, which is correct, connecting the eye uh, to the brain, the optic chasm. So you can see which chunk is experiencing the most atrophy and draw some conclusions. But in my world, that's important, but dementia, vascular dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, all these neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases have the same antecedents, in other words, the same causal factors. We keep seeing the same causal factors over and over and over again. And often we see comorbidity. My dad died of Alzheimer's, right? 15 years before he, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, he had glaucoma. So like, he's the perfect case. Glaucoma portended Alzheimer's. And OCT, in its crudest way, is a great measuring tool for glaucoma. So tell me about, uh, in summary, what diet do you recommend and what kind of supplements do you recommend for people as part of the overall package for prevention? Right. And I don't subscribe to any particular diet style. And so all we say is nutrient density. So here's the steps to nutrient density. If it's in a package, low end, not high, not high in nutrient density. If it's fast and easy processed, you can get it at a drive-through you know, place, not high in nutrient density. If it's a box store type restaurant, you know they're using cheap ingredients for processed, you know, processed food. It's not high in nutrient density. If it has a single ingredient on the label, it's high in nutrient density. And although there's a lot of controversy about organic, I believe local farmers 
um, have more nutrient, you know, more create more nutritious, nutrient dense food. There's a lot of work out there. We can easily measure nutrient density of food being a chemist using various techniques to look at mineral content. So you want to go down that line. Now, in terms of the eye and the brain, we have a lot of fatty tissue there. So you have to bring in healthy fats, nuts and seeds, high in nutrient density, fish, high in nutrient density, other healthy oils, coconut oil, uh, olive oil, high in nutrient density, vegetables on the low glycemic end of the index, high nutrient density. So this is it. And, and do you have to be, you know, does, does a meal have to be like um, unpalatable? No, I would pr promote that, you know, taste and texture can make anything palatable. We like spice. We like fat. We like salt. We like sweet. We like warm. We like cold. Manipulate your foods to meet some of these criteria, and you'll find out that you like fish. Look, my dad was the original organic gardener. Turned his mulch pile every three years put it back in the soil. We had food from the garden all year long. Why did he get Alzheimer's? He ate fish at Lent. You know, tilapia, four days a year, he was in the military and the Navy and just something PTSD, he just didn't like fish anymore. Fish is truly brain fuel. We need the EPA and DHA for a healthy brain. So the supplements I do, Magnesium, like a magnesium glycinate to calm the vessels, reduce inflammation. Vitamin D, we're all vitamin D deficient. I do a multi with a lot of methylating agents and iodine for thyroid health. So methylcobalamin, um, things of that, methylfolate, not folic acid, and then cod liver oil. Some people say, oh, rancidity, toxicity. Cod liver oil is the only supplement I know of that has at least a 1,000 year history of use. Used in the Viking era to reverse pain topically on aching sore rowing hands, okay? Used in the 1840s in, in British hospitals with people spitting blood called consumption, tuberculosis. It improved survivability by 300%. The rate pardon my French, there ain't a single drug out there that improves survivability by 300% in an end-stage disease. So those are the main things we, we use. Vitamin K2, but cod liver oil has that. Uh, vitamin A, very important. Um, Alfred Sumner going around the world saving eyesight by giving two cents worth of vitamin A. That's how crucial vitamin A is to eye health, retina health. And if we're not eating nutritious food, we're not getting a lot of vitamin A. You have to eat the vegetables to get the vitamin A. Uh, cod liver oil, rich in vitamin A. If you're a vegan, go to the original source. Go to algae-based uh, healthy oils to promote health of the eye and the brain. They're all connected. Well, give me three takeaways for prevention of Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, the diet and the supplements I assume that you're talking about, is there anything in general that you could tell us? Well, you, you know, really I believe it's, we have to go back to nature. 
you know, the, the one thing we haven't talked about, it's one of my three mechanisms, you know, inflammation, reduce your, you know, your low density, low nutritious foods and replace them with high nutritious foods. But then sensitivity in the gut is a big issue. So if you have any sign of gut dysbiosis, it's called the enteric nervous system, the connection between the gut nervous system and the brain. If your gut isn't optimal, you are what you absorb, not what you eat. So if you're eating well, but you have gas, you have bloating, you have constipation, you have a little reflux, you have eroding teeth, you're, you're just, your gut is not, you know, you're not pooping regularly. The poop status, go look at Mama Natural and watch her video on what your poop tells you about your health. It's quite profound. And these are things you have to correct. So, you know, nutritious food, fermented foods, probiotic and prebiotic foods. I'm Polish, you know, blessed to be Polish. I used to think it was a curse because I was born to a middle-class Polish and the brunt of a lot of intelligent jokes. Maybe that's why I went to MIT and Harvard, right? But cabbage, probiotic, prebiotic, sauerkraut, cold slaw, great for the gut, helps with digestion. You know, we're eating too much protein. That's increasing our actual sugar levels. So cut down on protein, increase vegetables. Don't get rid of the animal protein though. And then infection. I mean, congenital disease, read my paper. It's out for free on uh, PubMed and, and Google Scholar, you know, preventing causation of Alzheimer's from pre-birth to death. You know, we can get congenital, that means passed on from mom and dad, infection that can take hold later in life. Take care of your teeth. These are the biggest, these are the three biggest things. And I believe you can be Alzheimer's free. I believe we had societies that were completely Alzheimer's free. And everybody said, well, we died younger. Not true. 1870 England was a classic called the mid-Victorian period. Those mid-Victorians lived as long as Brits did today, but it's very unusual, well-documented their health. They had one-tenth of degenerative disease. Why? They were poor people too. They had a little garden in the backyard and they had chickens. And guess what? They did not waste one piece of that chicken, including the heart and the liver. Highly nutritious, nutritious food. They ate the whole thing. And so the mid-Victorians, we have to, tell me why we can't be as healthy as the mid-Victorian. One-tenth is as much as of chronic disease as we have today. So as we wrap up, tell me about some of the things that you're working on. And if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? Well, Kerry, thanks. You know, we run this four-dimension program where we run a very extensive functional risk survey, a very extensive blood panel. We do the eye test. I don't want to compete with optometrists, but we will send people who are interested in working with me to an optometrist that will do OCT and other scans, and then we'll do the interpretation if, if they would like. And then dimension four is if you're sick, let's get down and dirty, roll up our sleeves and find out what's going on. But our whole idea is to be as economical as possible. We funneled you in the survey, very inexpensive. I charge less than a hundred bucks for a one hour consult and a full assessment and your own personalized health record. And let's start there and find out what's going on. So my key website, is health revival partners.com. So it's health 
reviving your health, and it's a partnership between you and me because the pill is not the solution. We all have to do some, take some responsibility and do some heavy lifting to improve our health. So it's healthrevivalpartners.com. And I think we're one of the unique groups that looks across four dimensions and determines where are you ready to change? Do you have to have cancer or Alzheimer's? Or are you ready to make proactive changes early in along the continuum of health and disease? Well, thank you, Tom. This was wonderful. The genius of Dr. Tom Lewis. Uh, is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Uh, well, I would, I would say, Kerry, that a lot of people don't go to the, doc, the doctor. And I interview people that have a basic mistrust because it's five minutes in the prescription pad. They're all alter, there are alternatives. There's a traditional doctor that you have to pay her. And there's functional medicine that you know, they've worked outside the payer, but they tend to be very expensive. They tend to do a very extensive workup. I believe in the hybrid model that we've created, where let's start with the most basic, simple assessment of your life, because ultimately this is the driver of your longevity, your health span, and your lifespan. And that's where I think everybody should start. And we've sort of institutionalized that process. And I'd love to work with more optometrists to partner with the optometrist who is seeing people that aren't seeing a regular doctor that can funnel into a very basic program like us and we can work as partners in your health. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this with me and uh, I look forward to speaking to you again real soon. Thank right, you, Dr. Terry. Lewis. Terry, thank you so much. Take good care. Thank you. Bye. Bye for now.